You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. I'm in Jordan. I'm near Petra in a hotel room, and early tomorrow morning, me and uh, three friends of mine, guys who are on the board of Enduring Word, we're going to go visit Petra tomorrow. And so since it's Thursday night, and I enjoy these times so much, when I can come and pay a visit with you, I thought that today would be a good time to see if I could do this live Q&A from a hotel room near Petra. Petra is an amazing place. I've been there a few times before, and it's really this remarkable place uh, done, made, created, built by the Nabataeans. We might be able to get a little bit of a history on the Nabataeans in just a moment from my friend, Lance Ralston, and uh, I'm kind of committing him to that right now. I I wish you could be in here in this room with us right now. But th- this, on this particular night of our trip, we're four guys all in the same room, all in our individual uh, beds. We're all very tired because jet lag is still a factor here. Uh, we've kind of pushed ourselves to stay up late, even though it's only 10 o'clock here local time. But we're here anyway. Uh, why? Because we care about you. And we're here to answer your questions. That's a laugh from all the guys. We're, we're here to, uh, to, well, it's not funny. We do care about our viewers here, guys. But... Uh, it's because we enjoy doing the Q&A. So uh, here's the story. I'm not going to have a lead question other than I am going to invite my friend Lance to come over and give a little history about here at Petra, just a short, brief little thing. And then uh, after that, we'll get into the questions that you send in on the live chat and our moderator sends to me. So uh, with that, uh, let me introduce to you Lance Ralston, my oldest and dearest friend in ministry and part of the board here of Enduring Word. Lance, just center yourself right there. Hey, folks. How you doing? Yeah, there's four of us in the room here. Uh, so uh, the Nabataeans built Petra. It was, um, you can go online and just do a, a search for, for Petra, and you'll see some interesting pictures of the ruined city. Uh, the Nabataeans were a nomadic Arabic tribe in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. The area that we're in right now and that they eventually developed into the city of Petra was um, actually the ancient biblical realm of Edom. Uh, But the Edomites kind of fell into... um, uh, Decline. Yeah, they declined. Their their civilization, their culture kind of fell apart. And uh, when they left the area, they were really uh, defeated by David and some of the other kings of Israel. And then... The other big foreign powers like Babylon came down and really ended them. And so the area became empty. And the Nabataeans, who were nomadic Arabic tribe, moved into the area. Uh, They were uh, specialists at water preservation because they had been in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. And they had developed some very unique ways to reserve water. To to a little bit of rainfall that they would get, they would manage to be able to hang on to it and survive on that. And so when they moved into this area and settled down, no longer wandering around... They really took that to the next level, and they developed some really interesting uh, methods of water preservation and collecting water and putting it in big reservoirs. And they turned the city of Petra, they made the city of Petra into a center of trade. They became known as the major trade force for this entire area. So all of the east-west trade, everything that was coming out of uh, the south end of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, Yemen today, and that area down there, uh, was traveling uh, to the west over to Gaza, where it would get on ships and then go to the rest of the Mediterranean world. 
And this was one of the places they stopped because it was one of the few places that actually had water and where there's water, there's agriculture and the Nabataeans had built up the agriculture of the area as well. So all these caravan would stop here, caravans would stop here to resupply with water and food and supplies, rest a little bit, and then the last part of the journey down to, to Gaza. Then at the end of the first century, the Romans came in. It's a complicated story how they came in. But they eventually came in, and at first the Nabataeans were working with them. The Romans began to build there in the city of Petra itself some of their own places. And then, uh, as the Romans did, you know, today they're uh, your friend, and then tomorrow they take over. And that's <laughs> what they did uh, here. And so there's some great ruins here. Again, go online, look at them. Uh, the thing that's interesting about the architecture here is that because uh, it's sandstone, it was really easy to carve, but then it would be pretty, it would hold up pretty well but because they didn't have to use any of their carvings as actual structures to like support roofs or anything, they could just carve these structures into the cliff face um, that you would never be able to like make freestanding. And so the architecture here is a mix of both Babylonian, Persian, um, Egyptian, and then eventually Roman architecture styles kind of all mishmashed together. And there is your history on probably more than anyone even cared about knowing. So there you go. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Lance. How many times have you been to Petra? This is my only my second time. Second time to Petra. And Miles, you've been once, twice before. Oh, once before. And Chuck, this is going to be your first time here. So we're very excited about tomorrow. We're going to go to Petra. And then after that, we're going to go to Saudi Arabia to... Jabal Allah's. Jabal Allah's, yes. which is an alternative site for Mount Sinai. And, and if everything goes well, next Thursday, I'll be doing a live Q&A from there. Okay, so that's about that. I'm going to call Miles and Chuck over maybe to help answer a question later on. And uh, I'm pleased you could join me today. I, I do, this is set up in landscape mode. Now, I do this on my phone, from my phone while on the road. This is the first time when the phone wouldn't switch and do it in portrait mode. I don't know why. No, 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 we're in portrait mode. We're in portrait mode. Uh, it wouldn't do landscape mode, so I don't know why. And Miles couldn't fix it. Couldn't Our tech guru couldn't fix it. He told me to restart it. You gave me like 90 seconds. Well, you're supposed to be that good. All right. Okay, all right. Okay, um, I'm going to look over here at my screen. We're going to get on to some of the questions that have come in today. Excuse me here. Okay, it's going to take just a moment for this to refresh. I should have kept this screen active. So we've been here just for a couple of days in the kingdom of Jordan. I, I really enjoy coming here. The last time I was in Jordan, about a year ago, we met with some wonderful pastors, uh, Christian workers, and we were able to communicate a lot about the translation of my Bible commentary into Arabic. That's one of the big things that we are dedicated to doing here at Enduring Word and that is translating the Bible commentary into the 10 most used languages in the world, plus some strategic languages. We've been making a lot of progress in the last year in our Farsi translation, and I'm very grateful for that. Okay, so uh, here's the questions coming in now. Um, Derek asks, who did the Edomites descend from? Well, the Edomites descended from Esau, the brother of uh, Jacob. 
So uh, Abraham had a son whose name was Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah had twins. Their names were Jacob and Esau. And the Bible's very specific that the Edomites descended from Esau and not from Jacob. Uh, So that was the source of the Edomite people. Uh, They are a sort of a cousin nation to the people of Israel. Uh, So, Derek, I hope that answers that for you. Now, it it is sort of interesting when the Edomite population here uh, in the area that is today, the kingdom of Jordan, when it had declined enough, they moved out of this area and went to an area in South Judea, south of Jerusalem, uh, uh, closer to Beersheba is, is where they went. And there... Uh, they became known as the Idumeans. And Herod the Great, the first, uh, this great king who ruled when Jesus was born, he was an Idumean. And, and that is descended from the Edomites, but yet not the Edomites when they were here in the land of Edom, that is Jordan. Instead, they were, uh, by that time, they had migrated over to the Judea area. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Derek. Uh, Next question comes from Alfredo, uh, who asks, concerning Revelation 21, why will God destroy heaven and create a new one if it's considered to be a holy place? Um, I think part of it is, and and let let me just say, uh, Alfredo, I, I need to be very upfront with you. And I'm weighing in with, here I am in the room with three scholars at the same time. So if you guys want to just pipe in anything, you just go right ahead. Or kainos, uh, which is new, can be translated renew. It can be. So Miles says that kainos, the word there, can be translated renewed. Or fresh. Right, or fresh. Mm-hmm. You know, that is true. In the ancient Greek language, they had two words for new. One of them meant absolutely new, and the other one sort of meant renewed or fresh. Yeah. Um, is, he, is he referring to the heaven where God dwells or the heavens, heavens? Oh, well, very much so, Lance. That's another great point. But we should do this all the time. <laughs> Every time I do a th- you guys should just be with me here. The great comments from all over the place. Okay, so he, he, here's what Lance added in there, is it's important to make the distinction that the new heavens and the new earth is not speaking of the heavens where God dwells. That that doesn't be, need to be made new. But the Bible uses the term heavens to refer to three areas. Uh, the blue sky, the earth's atmosphere, the night sky, what we would call outer space, And then the third heaven or the third idea of heaven is the heaven where God dwells. So when we talk about a new heavens and a new earth, we're not talking about a new place where God dwells. That heaven of God's home, that never needs to be replaced. No, really what we're talking about is the the blue sky, I would say, and the night sky, the the, uh, heaven that's relevant to physical creation. So um, yeah, I I think that helps you there. because the, the holy place, there's a sense in which God has a divine purpose for this physical universe, but it's not the same as the heaven where God dwells. So Alfred, I would just make that distinction. Your kind of thinking when it says new heaven and new earth, you're thinking of the heaven where God dwells, and I don't think it refers to that at all. It refers to the heaven of material creation. Okay, thank you for that question, Alfredo. And like I say, this is just fantastic to get this input from our team of scholars. 
our College of Cardinals. Um, maybe I shouldn't use that reference. I'm sorry. Uh, Susan asks, hi, Pastor David, what's your understanding of 1 Corinthians 14.22? Here's the verse. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them who believe, but to them who believe not. But prophesying serves not for them that believe, but for them which believe. Yeah, what's your view on that? You know, uh, Lance, why were you chuckling when I was reading that question? Because it's a well-known conundrum. It, it is a difficulty, isn't it? Okay, um, Susan, I think this question came in from. Yes, Susan... Um, I got to admit to you that that is one of the most challenging verses in the New Testament. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something that I don't often do. I'm going to do it right now on my computer right here. And I'm going to go to my computer and I know that I speak to this in my commentary. And so I just want to get down to that particular verse and if I could be so bold, I, I don't know, it might even sound rude, but I hope not. I, I'm going to read to you or, or at least refer to the notes that I have here in my commentary on this. Okay, uh, this is what I write about this passage. Um, this is what I write in my commentary, EnduringWord.com, or you can find it on Blue Letter Bible. The guys will probably enjoy this. Uh, here, the straight reading of the text presents one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. In the straight reading of the text, Paul is plainly saying that it, tongues is a sign to unbelievers and prophecy is a sign for those who believe. The problem comes when we see what Paul wrote in the following verses, verses 23 through 25. First, that if unbelievers hear tongues in a meeting, they will not be blessed, but they'll say that the believers there are out of their mind. Second, if unbelievers hear prophecy and are convinced, convicted in their hearts, their reaction may be to worship God and report that God is truly among you. So here's the issue, Susan, and this is what makes this just honestly a very difficult passage. In verses 23, 24, and 25, Paul seems to indicate that tongues are not beneficial for ministering to unbelievers, while prophecy is beneficial for unbelievers. So how then can tongues be assigned to unbelievers, as he says here in verse 22, and prophecy assigned better suited for those who believe? I'll just say there is an apparent, I don't think there's a real, but there's an apparent contradiction between verse 22 and verses 23 through 25. Okay, and I think that this is probably the best. There's a few different ways that people have explained this, but Susan, I think this one is to be preferred that Paul is saying that tongues are indeed a sign, but not a positive sign to unbelievers. They're a sign of judgment. As the unknown tongues in the, of the Assyrians were in Isaiah's day. You see, in that prophecy of Isaiah that's referenced in this section, um, Isaiah was speaking in a sense that these foreigners are going to come and conquer you Israel, referring to the northern kingdom. And you're going to hear your conquerors speak languages you don't understand, and that will be a sign of judgment to you. Uh, so I think that that's probably the best way to take it. Tongues are indeed a sign to unbelievers, but it's a sign that condemns them 
as they regard tongues speakers as being out of their mind. So, Susan, uh, you could read on in my commentary. Again, I would just recommend to be said, I go to it in greater depth. But that is a very challenging passage. I think that's the best way to understand it. Paul is saying that tongues are indeed a sign, but not a positive one for unbelievers. Uh, before I move on, anything to add to that from Susan's yeah, question, guys? Yeah? Chuck, anything? Um, well, I think, I mean, I think also, too, I mean, being a, growing up in a Pentecostal church and, and, when you hear the tongues, if there's such a, if it's a true message of tongues, there's a power of the spirit there, and it, it's it's it like seizes even believers, and so but non-believers they're like you know yes. before they cast it off they're just like what's going on here kind of yes. thing. So it's a, it's a, it's almost like a rendering from God like okay. I'm here. Are you going to respond? Right. Friends, I don't know how well you can hear that. Chuck's over in the other side of the room, but I'm just saying, he's relating, as Chuck grew up in, in Pentecostal circles, how if there is a genuine gift of tongues being offered forth and a genuine interpretation as the Bible commands, there's something very spiritually powerfully there. And that spiritual power is something that can be a sign unto unbelievers. And so I, I would just echo that and amen that from, uh, from Chuck. Chuck Musselwhite. Our associate over there. To my left, Lance is in front of me on my right. Uh, Miles is about a 10 o'clock position here go. as the clock flows here. Okay, uh, next question comes from God Child, who asks, if the marriage supper happens after the Bema Seat judgment, how are the martyrs that come out of the tribulation into the millennial reign included in Christ's marriage and the heavenly reward? Okay, uh, Godchild, I, I, I'm interested to know what my friends here think, but I, I, I'm just going to say I, I don't make a big deal out of sequential chronology in these things. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be uh, firm on the idea that the marriage supper of the Lamb does happen before that. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't. I think there's an argument to be made for it. But I think that we can easily make too much out of order of chronology in the scriptures, especially when you're dealing with these prophetic or sometimes people call them apocalyptic passages. And so I think it's something to be cautious of and a bit avoided in that respect. Um, the critical thing for the Bema seat judgment that Paul refers to uh, both in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and in Romans, if I have it right in my mind, just doing a quick mental concordance. The important thing about that is not so much that the Bema seat isn't to determine seating arrangements at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Bema seat is to indicate uh, role, reward, and responsibilities as uh, God's resurrected people are his servants in a millennial earth. So I, I really see it in that way, that, um, th that it's not necessary that the Bema seat be before the marriage supper of the Lamb. Again, I I'm not saying that it's impossible that it would be, but I don't think it's anything at all to get hung up on because it's just not necessary for the Bema seat, that judgment of believers unto reward. Uh, it, it doesn't have to happen before the marriage supper of the Lamb. Any other thoughts here, gentlemen? Uh, I, I think that, that 
Marriage supper of the Lamb is a celebration of our union with Christ. Right. The other is about rewards. That, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Um, as Lance said, I'll just repeat it. The marriage supper of the Lamb is about our union with Christ. It's a it's a celebratory meal. You know, the, the marriage supper was the best party that a uh, biblical, Old Testament biblical person ever went to. That, that was just the best party of your life, uh, the, the marriage supper. And, and so it's no uh, a surprise that God uses that kind of imagery to describe our union with Christ. Uh, but the Bema seat is for reward. Again, not, not for uh, seating arrangements. You, you don't have to worry, who will I be seated next to at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Uh, no, you, it won't matter, believe me. Uh, next question, but before I go on to the next question, I do want to give a little bit of a greeting to our TWR360 audience. You know, here we are, uh, I live in California, but I'm across on the other side of the world in Jordan. Uh, in a few days, I guess by tomorrow night, we're going to be in Saudi Arabia. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. By tomorrow night, we're going to be in Saudi Arabia. And it reminds me of how God is working and God has a presence all over the world. And, you know, a big part of God's work in the world today is TWR, uh, Trans World Radio, has had that great shortwave radio presence for so many decades. And then as well, they carry on that work, not only through the shortwave radio work that continues, but through their online presence, TWR360. So um, we're grateful for our partnership with them and welcome to our TWR360 uh, viewers. Okay, so let me go on to the next question from Tammy, who asks, where did evil come from if it wasn't created? Or was evil created by God? You know, Tammy, uh, there's a passage in Isaiah, if I'm remembering correctly. Here I am in a room with three Bible scholars surrounding me, where, where God takes credit for creating evil. Is that, am I, am I thinking of that right? He says, I create evil in Isaiah 40, somewhere roughly around there. But it, it's in the context of, it, it appears to what he's doing to Babylon. Yes, yes. Is, it, it, it's a very, a very specific context. Right, yeah. so, so if there's any sense in which it is true that God creates evil, it's in the sense of allowing it and making a universe where evil can exist. Look, we we just have to recognize, Tammy, that it was possible for God to create a universe where evil just never existed. God could have done that. But God chose to create a world where evil could exist, and in reference to that Isaiah passage, God deliberately did things. He was active in creating things that were perceived as evil because they were great judgments upon uh, the nations and sometimes upon his own people, Judah and Israel. So when a person is on the receiving end of judgment, they regard it as evil. They do. I mean, it's almost universal in that respect. And God would say, I am the author of that. So we understand that evil is created by God in the sense that he allows it. And then sometimes that terminology can be used because God sends a judgment that is regarded by those who receive it as being evil. But I'll add one other thing to this. Evil 
as it exists in the world, is not a new thing. It's a twisting, a making something crooked of something that is good that God creates. God didn't have to create anything special for there to be evil in the world. God created good things, but good things that could be twisted, gifts that could be misused, blessings that could be abused, uh, outpourings of his grace that could be taken advantage of. And one way or another, every evil in this world is a twisting of some good thing that God has created. And so God didn't have to like create a separate category of evil. He created good that had the potential to be twisted. And that's what evil is in this world. Gentlemen, anything else? No? Okay, good. Um, Daniel asks this question. Hi, David. God bless you all. Was the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, fulfilled by Christ? Hot dog. Daniel, I love that question. I love talking about the new covenant. And let me just say, yes and not completely. I'll explain to you what I mean. The new covenant passages are so dear to me because to me, they explain so much of the work of Jesus and how God wants us to live in the present age. Those new covenant passages really concern um, this new work that would be instituted by Jesus. And friends, there is no mistaking this whatsoever because on the night before Jesus was crucified, the night he would be betrayed, Jesus got together with his disciples and he took those elements, those, uh, those things used in the Passover supper, the bread, a particular cup of wine, and he held them before his disciples and he reinterpreted those elements, those, those figures from the traditional Passover supper. And he took a cup of wine, Jesus did, and he said, not the normal blessing that would be pronounced. There was an entire Passover liturgy that goes back to ancient times and is still practiced today among faithful Jews who carry out Passover. As part of that, Jesus reinterpreted that cup of wine and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. I tell you, if the disciples knew the full importance of that, a chill would have run up their spine at that moment. I, I don't know. You know, it's hard to tell how aware the disciples were at the amazing things that were happening among them sometimes. But if they were aware, they, they would, would have been chilled to the bone. Goosebumps would have broken out over every square inch of their skin because Jesus announced that he was instituting by his death that was gonna happen the next day, the new covenant. The new covenant offers a, a complete cleansing from sin, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon everybody who partakes of the new covenant, not, not just a few people. You know, under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit was poured out on a few particular people for particular purposes. But under the new covenant, everybody receives this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Complete cleansing from sin, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, new relationship with God, inner transformation. I'll take the stony heart out of them and put within them a heart of flesh 
It's just powerful, beautiful stuff. But I, I do want to point out, and I'm not going to go to these passages because you, you can look them up and you can look through my YouTube library where I, I speak about the new covenant. There's an aspect of the new covenant promises that are not yet fulfilled, and that is the complete gathering of Israel in the land and their salvation. When I've preached on this, I, I title it the missing piece of the new covenant. I don't mean missing and something's wrong. It's just it has not yet been fulfilled. Those promises to fully gather Israel into the land and for there to be this tremendous outpouring of the Spirit upon Israel so that they return and, and they recognize Jesus as their Messiah. What we find in the scriptures is that that is part of the new covenant promises. So uh, was the new covenant fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Yes, but I would say not completely yet. There's still an aspect of the new covenant that is yet to be fulfilled, uh, but will be before the end of the age, of course. Okay, uh, next question. Anything to add on that, fellas? No, we're doing good here? You know, I'm keeping all of them awake. That's the thing. They can't fall asleep with me jabbering like this. And so, yeah, 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 that's right. All right. If you happen to hear snoring in the background, you know where it's coming from. Okay. Um, of course, snoring while I talk about the Bible is nothing new, is it? People fall asleep all the time, don't they? That's right. That's right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Next question comes from Tara, who asks, I was watching your second Samuel devotional about David, who went from bitter to better. How do you deal with toxic people in life and in the church? How do you pray for enemies if you are unhappy doing it? T Tara, so I'll give you the answer that Miles over here gave. He said you should pray imprecatory prayers. For you. Miles, do you want to come closer here and explain what an imprecatory prayer is oh, goodness, for the benefit of our... Uh, explain your, your answer there. Uh, tell Tara that the kind of... That was purely a joke. Uh, but well, what is an imprecatory okay, prayer? Okay, an imprecatory prayer is a prayer of judgment, like when David prays in the Psalms to break my, my enemy's teeth in their mouths. So those are imprecatory prayers. The, is and, that what you're saying Tara should pray for her enemies? <laughs> no, no, okay. but in a sense, it, is a, it actually is a... I think a righteous form of prayer because it is giving to God the power to bring judgment. It is, it is releasing that from your hands and saying, I'm not going to be the one to bring vengeance. Vengeance is God's. God, you repay, you do to them as you will and according to your righteousness. So that would be okay. a practical prayer. Excellent. Okay. Thank you, Miles. Okay. Yes. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah. So, um, Okay, the imprecatory prayer is good in the sense that it releases any kind of vengeance to God. And, and you know, Tara, that really is something you can pray. Say, Lord, whatever discipline, whatever correction, whatever they need, Lord, you do it. I give it over to you. I forsake any kind of taking vengeance. I, I forsake any kind of, of, uh, of sort of thing on my own. Lord, you do it. I lay it in your hands. And, and that's in the spirit of the imprecatory prayers. But Tara, I would say this. Um, I know it's hard. It's wearying. It's not fun. And I don't mean that in a light way, but it's unpleasant to pray for your enemies. You need to keep on doing it. It's what Jesus commanded, of course. But it's also just good. It, it keeps our heart from getting bitter. 
And I think we just need to continually do what Jesus told us to do. You know, Jesus recognized that we would have enemies. Jesus didn't say, well, if you just love me and follow me, everybody will be your friend. It's not like that. Jesus told us we would have enemies, but he told us that we need to love our enemies, that we need to pray for those who spitefully use us. Now, at the same time, Tara, you ask how to deal with toxic people within the church. And I would just give you this one point. I can't say everything that there is to say on this matter, but I'll say one thing, is that you you do need to recognize the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. I think it is entirely possible and, and good for us to say to a person, I forgive you, but, but I, I can't trust myself to you again. Um, I don't hold any bitterness in my heart towards you. I pray for you daily. I love you in the Lord, but, but I'm not going to trust you in the same way until I see that there's been repentance, that there's been a change in attitude, a change in action, Uh, that would really say, I can truly reconcile with that person. Look, there have been people that I've been with and worked with and had difficult time with in my life and my ministry. And I would say to those people, look, I love them in the Lord, but but I don't want to work with them again. And, And I don't think that diminishes the love that I have for them. But it does definitely mean that, uh, that there's something still awaiting to be reconciled. So I would make that distinction for you there, Tara. And I, I hope that's helpful for you. Anything else from the guys? Yeah? All right. Very, very good. Okay, next question comes from Tammy, who asks, how would you explain why Christianity is true among or above other religions? Well, Tammy, there's a lot to that question, but I'll just get it down to the basis. Christianity has something that no other religion has. God incarnated, sacrificed, and resurrected. Now, I know that there's some people out there who would laugh at the words I just said. They would say, David, all these Roman religions, guys, what what, what are the, the pagan gods that they say did the... Mithra or something like that? Have you heard that? Mithras. Mithras. Oh, Mithras was just like that. Friends, there are far more dissimilarities between these uh, apocryphal things of of Mithras and other uh, pagan idols and gods. Uh, There's more differences between them and Jesus than there are similarities. Uh, But what Christianity has, not only the story of God's incarnation, sacrificial death, and resurrection of the dead, but actual real evidence that it happened. Not just a legend, not a once upon a time, not a make-believe, but evidence that it happened. That right there is what sets Christianity uh, apart from all other religions. And I will say one other thing, because I think it's a very good question you asked there, Tammy. A fundamental difference between Christianity and other religions is every other religion is the story of man reaching up to God to try to find him. Christianity is distinct because it's the story of God reaching down to man in the person and work of Jesus Christ to come and bring salvation to man. What a remarkable difference that is between the two. 
So those are two things that I would think of immediately, Tammy, and I'm sure we could think of more, uh, but we'll go on to the next question. Um, George asks, hello, pastor. In what context is divorce biblically allowed? I'm suffering in my marriage for the fifth year, and I feel like I need a divorce. Even counseling didn't help. What should I do? Well, George, I'm going to give you an answer, and we've got three pastors in the room right here for me, so maybe they would have something that they would want to add to it after I speak. But George, God gives us principles in the Bible. Here's the principles, is that divorce is permitted where the marriage covenant has been broken by adultery, uh, sexual immorality, unfaithfulness. Now, let me say, it's important to say that the Bible never commands divorce in those cases, but it does allow it. And there's a big difference between the two. Anyway, that's the one situation where God permits divorce. Again, I want to stress, he does not command it. And, and, and all three of us in here as pastors, we've seen marriages rebuilt and become stronger and more blessed than ever after the pain of adultery. Uh, when... Um, Couples have forgiven and made a commitment to holiness and truly loving and being faithful to one another. So it's not a command to divorce, uh, but it is a permission, and we don't want to slight that. And the other allowance that God gives is when there is abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Now, it, there, there's some measure here that's difficult. Uh, sometimes it's difficult to define with any kind of precision what an unbelieving spouse is. Is it a spouse that makes no profession of faith? Is it a spouse that's life doesn't match up with a Christian life at all? There's things to consider there. And then there's also some issue about what abandonment means. So in those general cases, sexual immorality and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, God clearly gives permission for divorce. Now, George, this is what's very difficult. Those principles have to be applied with biblical pastoral wisdom. And George, I, I don't know where you live. I don't know what your church situation is. I don't know if you have godly pastors around you. But what any believer needs in a situation like this is wise pastoral counsel. A pastor who knows the word and understands those principles and how they work out in the scriptures, just as I've explained them to you, but also knows your life situation. Because George, I, I'll be honest with you, sometimes people intentionally, or sometimes it's unintentionally, they're not really upfront about things when they bring these situations. And there needs to be more digging, there needs to be the right questions asked, the right examination made so that a pastor can wisely and biblically and appropriately say whether or not God would permit divorce in a situation. I want to close my part of this before I just ask the guys here if they have any other comments, with again just saying, wherever God permits divorce in his word, he's not commanding it. And, and that's just a very important principle to come back. I, I think that uh, it's the place of a believer to say, Lord, I understand your word, and in my particular situation, if this does apply, that I have permission to divorce, but Father, what I really want is your will. 
Can you guide me as a child of God in this situation? So uh, I'll open up to the, the brain trust here. I think, I, I Chuck, Chuck, do you want to come and... Here's Chuck Musselwhite, folks. Am I in the camera? Okay. Yeah, there you are. All right. Um, I guess I should scoot up a little more. I, I guess I'd say two things. The first thing, the question I would ask is, why do you want a divorce? Because um, you're saying the marriage has been tough for five years. So my question is, is why, not, not the reasons, but why do you want a divorce? And, and then the second reason, especially when I do marriage counseling, is I go through and say, not on the other person, but I talk to the, pers- I talk to the person who obviously comes to me. I say, have you fulfilled your, um, your marital obligations? And, um, and this is often time where I see a breakdown. Uh, because the expectations they have on the other person is often a lot higher than the expectations that they put upon themselves. You know, and we're called as, uh, when we get married, we're called to become one, okay? And so you have to ask the question is, are you, are you both one as a couple? Um, this, the second thing is you have to ask yourself this question is like, am I serving my spouse the way, am I laying, and, and especially if you're a man, cause in Ephesians five says you're laid down your life as Christ laid down his life for the church. Are you laying down your life for your wife? And, um, and if you, if you are, and, and, and there are other issues, you know, and, and it's clearly under the case, then, then, you know, then we have to work through those. But then even then you have to like still continue that servant mentality. And I think the, the whole aspect of serving, um, our spouse is greatly undervalued. Um, and because I think we've bought into this Disney romantic thing of like what I get out of a marriage. And honestly, I get more out of my marriage by what I put in than, than whatever my, whatever I was expecting from my, from my wife. And, um, and the fact is, is that when we sacrifice and we serve and we submit to one another in that love, that's where the true joy and the peace comes from a relationship. So that's what, that's what I would ask um, if you were sitting across from me in my office. So hope that helps. Thank you, Chuck. That's great. <laughs> I appreciate it. Hope that's helpful for you there, uh, George. Let me go on to a next question here from, oh, looks like we're on the lightning round. Do you believe it? Now my moderator gives, us, gives me a lightning round at the end. All right. Thank you, moderator. <laughs> Here's the lightning round. Uh, Derek, uh, have you ever considered leading tours to places like this? I would go. Derek, yes. Uh, we're working on a tour to Israel next year in the fall, in the fall, fall of 2024, uh, which may also have a component, an add-on for some time here in Jordan, which would be wonderful. Uh, Peter asks, Pastor Guzik, when are you coming to Kenya? Uh, I'm actually am coming to Kenya in April. April, I'm going to Kenya and Uganda. So that's when I'm going to be in that country. Peter, God bless you. Uh, Peter, have I written books? How can you get one? Um, You know, you can go on our website, but I will have to say the books that I have written, uh, the most of them, the commentaries, that content is available absolutely free. You don't need book. You don't need to buy the books. You can get the content absolutely free on our website, enduringword.com. And uh, that's a commentary through the entire Bible. Yes, we put it in print for people who want it in print. Uh, We don't have all of the Bible commentary in print yet. We're working on that. Uh, But the content that we do have is 
is available in print. Can you believe this? All right. Um, Eric, does the Bible teach a plurality of elders as opposed to having a single head pastor with associate pastors beneath him? It's great to be able to do this as a professional. That's what I really appreciate. Eric, uh, I believe that the Bible does not mandate any focus is the important thing right now. Does not mandate any particular form of church government. And so I do believe that either the elder rule model with a plurality of elders, meaning more than one, or the pastoral leadership model are both biblical examples. And I think we find examples of both of those leadership models in the New Testament church. Uh, The most important thing for biblical leadership of a church is not the structure that they use, but the godliness of the leaders. If you have godly leaders, either one of those structures can work and God can bless them. And I think that God did not command a specific form of church government, a specific structure of church government to leave it adaptable to the times, the people, the congregation, the needs, and that's just what needs to be sensitive to. Uh, Next question comes from Tara. Thank you for your commentary. It's the first I've read since I started reading my Bible. My question is limited atonement biblical. Tara, it just matters in what sense does someone mean that the atonement is limited? There is very clearly a sense in which Jesus died for the world and for the sins of the world. The Bible says so directly. However, we do understand that the work of Jesus on the cross, his atonement, is only effective for those who believe. So we have to understand there's a sense in which Jesus died for the sins of all the world. The Bible clearly says, uh, but it is only affected. It is limited in effectiveness to those who believe. And so uh, that's one of those areas of theology. Everything really depends upon the definition of how somebody wants to define it. Next one comes from Andromeda, who asks, Is it a sin if we are Christians and still have traumas if we had a hard childhood or adolescence? I feel blessed because Christ chose me, but I still have bad memories and I feel guilty. Uh, Andromeda, if you're talking about things that were done to you, bad experiences that were inflicted upon you, Andromeda, you don't have anything to feel guilty about. And I do believe that ideally God wants you to go get beyond them, so to speak. But that's not something that can be done by saying the words or snapping a finger. It it takes time and it takes God's healing and and sort of the playbook for that can be different in each individual life. I I do think it's, it's... it's ultimately God's goal to redeem those things and to have them be in the world, uh, rear view mirror, to come to the place where Joseph could say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Man, that's a heart that has fully released these things. So I do believe that's God's will, but I, I'm very sensitive to the fact that this can't be like commanded. <laughs> you know, hey, hurry up. You're not, you're not over it yet. I I I want to be very sensitive to not doing that in a person's life. 
Um, so Andromeda, you, you don't need to feel guilty about anything that you've done, but, but Andromeda, maybe, maybe you're grieving over the sins of your youth. Remember that great Psalm of David where he prayed to the Lord, remember not the sins of my youth. You can bring those sins of youth if that's what you're talking about and receive God's forgiveness from them, confess, repent, and receive. So either if the things that trouble us from our past are things that we have done or things that have been done to us, God can bring great healing. It's not as easy as saying the words and snapping fingers. Uh, Sometimes this takes a long time for God to work his work into it. Uh, But Andromeda, we've seen God do it again and again. So please don't lose heart. God's still working in you and through you. Next question comes from Tommy. Since forever, that is eternity, is a long time, is it not the case that for some who go to hell, the punishment doesn't fit the crime, so to speak? No, Tommy, I, I, I look at it in a couple of ways. First of all, the way I conceive of the duration of hell's punishment is that it is only as long as is just. Well, when is a debt, sometimes we talk about a sin or a crime being a debt. We talk about a prisoner who is released from jail, released from prison because they paid their debt to society. We use that terminology. Well, once a debt is paid, there's no reason any longer to require it. Here's the problem. Imperfect beings, human beings, you and I, every person who's ever walked this earth has been imperfect with one exception, and that's Jesus Christ. Imperfect beings, it's impossible for us to make a perfect payment for sins. And so the debt can never be paid. God in his justice would say, uh, you'll be released as soon as the debt's paid, but the debt is never paid. That's one aspect to think of. But there's another thing I want you to think of, Tommy, is that I do believe that there will be different gradations, no, gradations of punishment in hell. Jesus spoke of those who would have greater condemnation, those who would be more accountable for their sin. And and I think simply the principle of justice demands that some will have a greater punishment in hell than others. Now, of course, I'm not trying to imply for a moment, because the Bible never implies this, that some people will have it good in hell. No, 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 no. It's just some people will have it worse than other people will. And that is another way that God uh, matches the judgment to the crime. You know, God is a good judge. God's good in everything he does. This is fresh on my mind because I've preached about this a couple times in the last month or so. God is good at everything he does. There's not a single thing that God does that he's not good at. And God is a good judge. And what does a good judge do? A good judge, number one, acquits the innocent. Number two, he punishes the guilty and he punishes the guilty appropriately. Not too much, not too little. That's what a good or perfect judge does. God is that perfect judge. So while we may not be able to comprehend it completely, uh, we trust in the ultimate goodness and rightness of God's judgments. Hope that's helpful for you there, Tommy. Next question comes from George. 
is tithing for our day. Uh, George, that's a big study to go into, into the New Testament. It's a study I love to talk about. Uh, Maybe we'll make that a lead question sometime. But the quick answer to that is proportional giving is commanded of believers today. In instructing the Corinthians in how they should give, Paul said that you should give as you have been blessed. In other words, if you've been blessed more, you should give more. If you're blessed relatively less, then you don't need to give as much. Proportional generosity is a Christian principle. Now, tithing or 10%, that's just a proportion. And it was the proportion that was commonly practiced under the old covenant. Um, Should Christians do more for the Lord? Should they be more generous under the new covenant than under the old? I think there's a case to be made for that. But I will say this, though the New Testament does not emphasize the tithe, it does give the principle of proportional giving, number one. And secondly, it frees Christians to give more than 10%. I've heard, I, I haven't, I can't recall a direct citation right now, but I've heard that among some early Christians, they used to say things like this, we're not under the tithe, we can give more. I know that's a challenging thought there, George, but there are some believers who I think are not really pleasing the Lord because they're stuck on giving 10% where God has blessed them so much that they should really give more. Okay, so that's a long answer to that, George, and this is the lightning round. So I'm going to get on to the next question, but I hope that's been sufficient for you there. Uh, Next question comes from Marilyn, who asks, your commentaries on the books of the Bible are wonderful. Thank you for that, Marilyn. How have you had the time for research and writing? I'm looking around at my guys. He never stops. Well, I don't know if you heard that. But, okay, Marilyn, here's the thing. That reflects work going back almost 40 years now. 37, 38 years. And so I've been working in a certain direction with a certain passion, with a certain heart for a long time. And it's really just an outgrowth of my Bible preaching and teaching ministry. I never sat down to write a Bible commentary. I just found that what I prepared for myself as teaching notes was beneficial for other people as Bible commentary. But the way that my notes are prepared and the way that I study the Bible and prepare for myself that other people use as Bible commentary, that goes back uh, 37, 38 years. And so, Marilyn, I've been working at it a long time. All right. Um, Django asks, what is the biblical significance of Petra? Okay. Petra is identified with Okay, I'm looking for some help here, guys. Is it Basra, Lance, Mm -hmm. in the Old Testament? Mm -hmm. Petra is identified with a place in the Old Testament called Basra, a place where the idea is that when a coming world leader persecutes the Jewish people, they will find refuge in Basra, 
Now, I don't mean that it has to be this specific place, but in this general area, and by the way, there are thousands of hotel rooms in this area Mm -hmm. that could receive a lot of refugees, as well as Petra itself, but I think more in terms of of the infrastructure they have to support a lot of people around here. Because this is Jordan's biggest tourist attraction by far, and deservedly so. The Bible speaks about under a coming world leader, the Jewish people, being persecuted, fleeing to Basra, and the Messiah at his return, executing judgment at Basra in protection of his people. So there's some very definite events there, plus... Anytime you read in the scriptures about the land of Edom, this is the general land of the Edomites. So, of course, uh, Petra, what we know today, wasn't built by the Edomites. It was built by the Nabataeans, as Lance explained so well at the very beginning. But this general area was part of the area uh, that the Edomites lived in for many, many years until they went over uh, in virtually Roman times to uh, Judea, a section of Judea, and became known more more as the Idumeans. All right, I hope that's helpful for you there, Django. Okay, last question comes from Alfred. Is Christianity the only truth? Well, Django, the founder of Christianity, the focus of Christianity, Jesus Christ, he said, I am am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's a very exclusive claim. Now, it's not to say that God has not revealed things to humanity through creation and conscience, but those are things that would align with, that would go along with the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. So, If somebody discovers a principle of electricity that helps them to build a semiconductor, you could say, well, that's truth. And that didn't come from Christianity. Well, but it's truth of the created order, which God created. And the Bible says that God created all that. I think in some way or another, you can trace all truth back to Jesus Christ, the one who said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So um, that's about it. Folks, I want to say again, before you leave, God willing, and if we live, never mind, God willing, and and if we live, we are going to do next Thursday's uh, live Q&A from Saudi Arabia, and I'll tell you all about our experiences at the alternative site of Mount Sinai, which is called... Jabal Allahs. Jabal Allahs. For some reason, I have the hardest time keeping that in my head. Jabal Allahs. Is that right? Yep. yep. Jabal Allahs. Uh, we'll be taking a look at that, and I'll give you a full report, God willing, and if we live, uh, next Thursday. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, moderator, for everything you've done today. And uh, thank you all for joining us. Sorry about the portrait mode. I just, I like I say, my phone wasn't cooperating, and we couldn't get it working properly. But anyway, this works one way or another. Thank you so much, everybody. God bless you. Thanks for joining us today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.